0: Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Last Sunday, we started the book of Nehemiah, this uh, series throughout the Old Testament book. Um, And and if you need a Bible, by the way, uh, we'd love to give you one. We have Bibles that we uh, love to give people just right up here. Come see us after. We'd love you to have your own Bible. And. As we head into Nehemiah chapter two this morning, I wanna remind you of the prayer of Nehemiah that was recorded back in chapter one and what that prayer showed us. And we looked at this last week and near the end of that prayer, Nehemiah presented himself as an offering to God, right? He, he said basically, God, I am ready to be used as your willing servant. And then at the close of his prayer, Nehemiah asked God to grant him success and mercy in the sight of a particular man, okay? And we gather that this man he was referring to was Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And that is where we found ourselves at the end of chapter one, where Nehemiah is willing to do any job that God would call him to do in order to help his people, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. Spoiler alert, okay? God is going to give Nehemiah a job, and the job is going to be that he is gonna build a wall around Jerusalem. But the problem is, is Nehemiah already had a job, and he couldn't see his way out of the one he already had. Because we saw at the end of Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, that this is the work that Nehemiah did. It says, now I was cupbearer to the king. So, Nehemiah was a Jewish man living in exile in Persia, working a high-level government position. And remember that at this time, the Persians held world dominance. They had come in and successfully overthrown the Babylonians, took over their land and their power, and therefore, the Persians sort of inherited all of these exiles that were living in Babylon. And so the Persian government, what they demanded from these people was obedience and honor from the people. Any sort of treason, any hint of conspiring to take over the Persians meant immediate death. And look, it's not like the Persians or the Jews had any sort of voting rights. This was sort of a cutthroat form of government where the Persian king would secure his throne by killing people. History tells us that King Artaxerxes, who's the king that Nehemiah served as cupbearer to, that he murdered two of his own brothers to secure the throne. Sounds like a pretty nice guy, right? And so you can see how in this corrupt form of government, how the king was always thinking that somebody was out to kill him in order to take away his throne. And so Nehemiah's job was to be the cupbearer to the king. What his job essentially was is that he would taste the wine that was served to the king at each one of his meals. And Nehemiah's job was really two things. He was to make sure that the wine tasted good and to make sure that the wine wasn't poisoned, okay? And so this line of work that Nehemiah did would make that one TV show, Deadliest Jobs. <laughs> and as cut bear, bringing the wine before the king every day, while he was in the king's presence, he had to show the utmost respect and honor of King Artaxerxes. Any sort of slip of the hand, any misspoken word to the king could cost Nehemiah his life. And so with this in mind, that is where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter two, beginning now at verse one. Let's read. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now the first thing we see here in verse one is that a date is given. Again, the date is from the Jewish calendar. It was the month of Nisan, which is around the time of March or April. But Nehemiah also gives us the date according to the year that King Artaxerxes had reigned, that it was the 20th year of the king. And I noted last week that having these two dates speaks to the fact that Nehemiah is an exile. He was living between two worlds. He was a Jewish man living in Persia. But this date that's given at the beginning of Nehemiah 2 is important for two other reasons. The first reason is that it helps us to understand some things about an important biblical prophecy known as the 70 weeks prophecy that is found in Daniel chapter nine, which talks about how a decree was given for the Jews to go back into their land and to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But that's for another study. Maybe you could do that one on your own. The other reason the date is helpful is because we can see that four months had passed since Nehemiah first heard the news of the condition of his people. In chapter one it said it was in the month of Kislev, and now it's the month of Nisan. And so we can assume then that for those four months, Nehemiah has been praying for an opportunity from God to bring restoration to Israel. You guys, this means that Nehemiah didn't get over it. Nehemiah was truly burdened for his people and for the city of Jerusalem. He carried a four-month burden, starting in Kislev, going all the way till Nisan. Nehemiah stewarded this burden by praying to the Lord, by fasting before the Lord. He didn't get over it. And God was preparing the work that Nehemiah would do, and he was preparing that work in the hard work of prayer. You know, any good work usually begins with the work of prayer. And you see, prayer can be work, right? I've heard prayer once defined as soul sweat. That it's a workout. That you're, you're carrying these burdens, and to release these burdens to God, you have to pray. And it can be a workout to pray for your family. It can be a workout to pray for your friends, and for your coworkers, and for your city, and for your country. If prayer were easy, we'd all be doing it more. Right? And, and I confess my own lack of it. So already what we're seeing in this book is that Nehemiah was a man of prayer, and God can do great work through a person of prayer. And so we've already learned now that to have a sad countenance in the presence of the king was a dangerous thing, right? So Nehemiah, after having prayed for four months, is still sad, Did you hear that? That after praying for four months, Nehemiah was still sad. (laughs) Prayer can change a lot of things, but sometimes it's okay to be sad. And sometimes you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and guess what, you're still sad. But but Nehemiah was sad for a purpose, and he came into the presence of the king with sadness upon his face. Now, this is dangerous, because this could signal some sort of threat to the king. But Nehemiah had been so affected by the news in Jerusalem that his heart was aching, and that it was clearly showing on his face even after having prayed about it. So let me, let me just talk for a moment here about sadness. As human beings, we cannot escape our humanness. When our hearts are sad, it's going to show on our face. Now, some people have become experts at having their emotions being disconnected from their physical appearance. They, they, they never show the emotions that are going on inside of them. And, and I don't think that's a very good thing. You see, for the, mass, the vast majority of us, our emotions are going to show on our outward appearances because that's how God made us and he made us as an emotional being and we can't escape that fact and, and what we're gonna see here is that addressing your emotions may actually be a very good thing and bring about really good results. And so for Nehemiah, he was sad. He had reason for his sadness and the sadness showed upon his face and the king took notice of that. The king said, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? Again, it was probably an unusual thing for the king to see Nehemiah with a sad face. Nehemiah came to work every single day, and he did his job with joy and excellence. Because why? His life depended on it. But on this day, Nehemiah wasn't feeling it. He he was sad, and the king knew that something was up. And notice that when the king asked Nehemiah why he was sad in his presence, that this brought a lot of fear into Nehemiah's heart. It says in verse 2, I was very much afraid because this could mean his death or at least the removal from his position. And so he says to the king, Let the king live forever. Here's what I think Nehemiah is doing he's, as you would say, buttering up the king right? Let the king live forever. Oh my goodness, I'm going to die. <laughs> but before he, he, he he's going to tell him, he's going to tell the king what's going on in his heart. But before he does that, he exalts the king. Now, now look at how Nehemiah gives reason for his sadness and how he does it so honestly. That's, that's what I love about people, that, that when I ask them, hey, you look sad and they're honest about their sadness. They can give a reason for why their emotions might be showing on their outward appearance. And that's what Nehemiah does in verse three, he says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So, Nehemiah gives the reason for his sadness here, and he does it rather tactfully, right? He, he doesn't first mention the city of Jerusalem by name. What he does first is he appeals to the king on the basis of something that the king might relate to, and that is a respect for dead ancestry, saying, look, the, the, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins." So, he, he's saying... You have a respect for the dead. Now, that might not be very tactful for the guy who killed two of his brothers to secure the throne. But nonetheless, Nehemiah begins his appeal that way. Now, I'm sure that in this moment, Nehemiah's heart is just thumping. Perhaps he's waiting for the words of the death sentence. Get this man out of my presence. How dare this cutbearer be sad in the presence of Artaxerxes. But no, we see that the king allows Nehemiah to continue his appeal. Which by the way, aren't you so glad that our God, King Jesus, is not like King Artaxerxes? That that God is the king of heaven and earth and he knows every emotion that you have. And there never needs to be a moment where you need to be afraid to show your emotions to King Jesus. Now, Nehemiah was afraid to show his emotions to King Artaxerxes, but as we saw in chapter one, we knew Nehemiah was never afraid to show his emotions to the king of heaven and earth, nor should we. And so in verse four, though, we see that that prayer of Nehemiah, chapter one, was answered, that that he was granted access to the king. Verse four said, says that then the king said to me, what are you requesting? This is the open door. This is the answer to the prayer of Nehemiah 1.11 where he prayed, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So here's Nehemiah's opportunity to request something from King Artaxerxes, the most powerful ruler at this time. This is the opportunity that Nehemiah has been praying for for over four months since he first heard the news about Jerusalem from his brother Hanani. And James says this: that we have not because we ask not. And I think that the reason Nehemiah had this opportunity is because he had been asking God for this opportunity for months. And many times, we desire to do great things for God, right? We pray, God, would you give me big opportunities? Would they just appear before me? But are we willing to sow in prayer until we see those opportunities arise? See the opportunity that Nehemiah found himself in is no coincidence. This is Nehemiah praying for this opportunity. And because he had prayed, God was orchestrating the people and the places and the time and the money, etc., for God to answer the prayer of his humble and willing servants. And so here it is. This is Nehemiah's chance. Here's his time to speak directly to the king, so what does he do? And the second half of verse four says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> I love that. Now listen, he did not say to the king, You know, it, it says he prayed, it's not like he comes to the king like, king says, what's your request? Oh, hold on, Mr. Artaxerxes, I'm gonna go off to the side for a minute and, and pray real fast and see what God should have me say, no, like. Nehemiah's in the shark tank. He needs to think quick and act fast, and he needs to say the right things. So he doesn't go off and pray for a few minutes as he's thinking about what he wants to say to the king. Well, then how did he pray? It says he prayed. Well, he, he prayed in a moment. Perhaps with a whisper or, or just in his spirit, he lifts up a prayer to God in this critical moment. And this is what I love about Nehemiah, this man of prayer, is that he had this abiding connection with God, that while conversing with King Artaxerxes, he could also be conversing with God. And that's the power and the beauty of prayer, because that's the ease of prayer. And you're like, wait, I I thought you said just a few minutes ago that prayer is hard. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Prayer has been defined as soul sweat, but prayer can also just be defined as talking to God. Isn't that amazing? There are many kinds of prayers, guys. There are quick prayers, long prayers, prayers of petition, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of intercession. There are many kinds of prayers for many different situations, but they all yield the same result which is that they show that we're putting our dependence upon God to move. And so Nehemiah here prays. And did you know this? That you can be talking with a person and while having a conversation with that person, you can simultaneously be praying to God. Did you know that there are times that I am preaching that I am also at the very same time praying to God? And it is this thing that we have this ability because God hears everything. The prayers that are verbalized, the prayers that are just in our spirit. So what was this prayer? It was like a one second prayer. Maybe he said, help me, Lord. Maybe he said, God, give me wisdom right now. Or maybe it was, God, I don't So this one second prayer that Nehemiah prayed as he answers the king, we need to also understand something though. This prayer was preceded by four months of long, detailed prayer that God had heard for the people of Jerusalem and the Lord had answered those prayers and right now was moving upon the king's heart. So there's a place for long and labored prayer And there's a place for quick prayer. And it's good to learn what kind of prayer best suits the situation that you're in. We should always be talking to God. We should pray at all different times and in all different ways, showing that we depend upon God for every moment. And I guess what I'm trying to do here is I'm really trying to get across the sense that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And that he is a good example to us as servants of God. That that good works need to be birthed in the place of prayer. And so here we see he's praying to the king of heaven, simultaneously talking to the king of Persia. Which, by the way, I just have a little side note here. You guys probably know this verse quite well. Proverbs 21.1 states that the king's heart... Is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. You might know this scripture from 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. There's a very simple truth of Christianity. God is sovereign. God is in control. God's hand guides the hearts of kings and all who are in authority. And Nehemiah knew this. And he trusted God to bring about God's purposes and plans. And he depended upon God to do the work of softening the heart of King Artaxerxes toward Jerusalem and toward the Jewish people. And how did he do that? He prayed. He prayed for the king. He prayed for all who were in authority. And he did so quietly and peaceably with godliness and reverence. Because Nehemiah believed that the king of heaven had power over the king of Persia. And you know that still to this day, that the king of heaven and earth has power over every ruler in authority that exists. Amen? So let's continue along as we now see what Nehemiah is going to ask of the king. Verse 5 says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So this is a pretty bold request, right? Nehemiah's asking for a leave of absence to basically go fortify enemy territory, to go to the capital city of the Jews, and whatever favor that Nehemiah has built up in you know, maybe picking out some good wines for the king, This request is gonna require quite a bit of favor. So verse six says, and the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Doesn't this kind of sound like an interaction between a parent and their teenager? Like, hey, dad, can I take the car to go hang out with my friends? It's like, how long's the journey? When will you return? Call me when you get there. And that's sort of the interaction that I see happening between Nehemiah and the king. But I think what stands out to me is how prepared Nehemiah was to answer the king. And you better believe that Nehemiah had a plan. He had already thought through the whole process thought through what sort of questions might be asked and what sort of answers he might give to the king to talk about this work that Nehemiah wanted to do. And that's just a quality of strong leadership that we are already seeing in this man, Nehemiah, is that a leader has a vision. A leader has a plan, and they are able to give an answer for that plan. And the vision and the plan of Nehemiah, where was it birthed? It was birthed in prayer, And plans that that spiritual leaders must develop, they need to be developed in fellowship with God. And so I, I love following a leader with a plan. And I love when I can sense that those plans are formed in prayer and directed out by God. And Nehemiah was a man who was able to articulate to the king everything that God had put in his heart to do. And it pleased the king to send him. Now it says that the king was pleased to send him and believe it when it says that because in the next verses we're gonna be shown all the resources that the king gave to Nehemiah in order to go and build this wall. Verse seven and eight says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beans for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the walls of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted to me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. It's pretty cool, right? Nehemiah's like, I'm going to need passports, visas, we need all the official documents, Uh, I'm going to need building materials for the gates, for the walls, oh, and for my own personal house. Uh, Nehemiah was bold to ask for all these things because why he had a vision and he had a plan and he knew what he needed to execute that plan. And the king gave him everything he needed. It's incredible. And that, guys, that's quite generous coming from a pagan king. Like, that is a whole lot of favor. Now, now, do you think that God had any part in all of this? Who allowed Nehemiah to go to Judah? Who provided the letters of permission? Who provided the materials that would be used for building? Who provided the transportation and the men to get there? Was it King Artaxerxes, or was it God? God. Yes, it was both. Because God had been working on the king's heart as God's good hand was upon Nehemiah. It says there, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. That's that's just amazing to see. To have the hand of god upon you means that god will give you favor the opportunities to do the lord's work are going to come about even before kings and rulers that your plans are going to succeed because god is in the midst of your plans that god orchestrates things in such a way as to prepare beforehand the works that you're going to walk in and that is how god works What God does is he uses all things, even if it means pagan kings who had no faith in God to execute his plans and purposes. God knew all along what he wanted to do and who he would use to do it. God knew he wanted to use a Persian king who worshiped false deities to pay for the whole project and that he would use a humble cupbearer with a broken and contrite heart to lead the way. And when God's hand is on a person or on a work, guys, there is no stopping what God might do. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no trial in it, that there's no pushbacks, that there's no setbacks, As we'll see in the next verse, opposition will arise. But know this, that when God's good hand comes upon you to do good works for the name of God, epic things are gonna happen, amen? Amen. So watch and see the favor of God being upon you. And and what I'm speaking on is clearly on the basis of these promises. From Ephesians 2.10, we read, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. See, God has good works for you to do. And listen, you want his hand to be upon you as you do them. And verse nine says, and I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So Nehemiah sets out from Susa. He makes his way toward Jerusalem. This is about an 800 mile journey. And he's got the king's backing, right? It says there that he had army captains and a mob of horsemen to lead the way. He has his letters. He's got the legal documents that give him permission to pass through any region without any issues. He has all the resources needed to do the work. One letter, in fact, was to be handed over to the keeper of the king's forest. The king had whole forests. And Asaph was the keeper of one of them. And Nehemiah just handed the letter to Asaph and Asaph cut down the whole forest and said, here you go, it's all yours. He had permission from the king to do all of these things and this is what we would call provision. This is God's hand being on a work. Now, when we started this book, I said that what we wanted to do is we would wanna bring it up to our current day to our current situation. And here's here's what I think, you guys. I think God's doing something. I think that when God's hand is upon something, there is no limit to the possibilities. Now, I happen to humbly believe that God has his hand on this church. And I don't know if you agree with me or not. I sense it. God has his hand on this church. Let me just share one way that I have seen God's hand on this work. This work started when my family moved from Santa Barbara down here to Palos Verdes to plant a church in the summer of 2020. You guys remember that summer, right? (laughs) And when we came, we had very little resources during what was a difficult season for everyone. But we had a vision and we had a plan. And that vision and that plan was birthed in prayer and God had called us to come to this place because God had put such an intense burden upon our hearts that we could not shake ourselves from it. Even when it was like, should we move during the global pandemic? Yeah, I guess so, let's go. And we came. And then we met the leaders of Life on the Hill Church. And we shared our vision and we shared our plans. And we prayed with them about that vision and about that plan. And in those prayer meetings that we were having together with the leadership of Life on the Hill Church, God moved in incredible ways by his Holy Spirit in such a way that unusual blessing and favor came upon us at the start of this church. You you know, church planters usually don't have people saying... Here's the keys to our building. Here is our bank account. And God had prepared Life on the Hill Church to be used for such a time as this to bring us together, and then he would pour out his spirit upon us, and he would do things that would just, all we could say is, this is God's hand. This is God's favor. This is God's blessing. This is God's abundance. And our prayer, right, Rob? and Ben-Kai, and Ben, what do we pray all the time? Lord, would you continue to have your hand upon this church? We pray that all the time. Because we see that what has happened here is a work of God's hand. That God's hand has given the approval of this church, the provision of this church, the guidance of this church, the blessing of this church. And what we seek for this church is that God's hand would be upon our good work. And we believe that it has, amen? Yet good work is never without opposition. Look at verse 10. But when Sambalat the honorite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So here's the first mention of opposition in Nehemiah, and there's gonna be plenty of it. So recognize those names now, Sambalat and Tobiah, because they're gonna come up again throughout this book. And these guys felt that they were being checked in on because they had not been governing the city well. And they didn't like that Nehemiah had come. These guys were clearly not doing their job of governing Israel. Their oversight had failed. And so to have Nehemiah come in really upset them. Now, now I sort of wonder here. I wonder if Sambalat and Tobiah were bad people. Like, if these were just really shady and crooked dudes. Like, I don't know. But perhaps this is the situation is that maybe they were just comfortable. They had their jobs, they were king's officials. But you know, they lived at a distance from the king, 800 miles away, and because of that sort of felt distance, they had a sort of laid back attitude. But, but that sort of comfort can come at a cost, right? Is that when you're just sort of comfortable and you ignore the issues is that then the city that you're supposed to be governing is in disarray. And the people were in trouble and they were in shame and there was no protection around them. And, and but, but look, you know, their salaries came in they lived happy lives, and so what did they do? They just turned a blind eye to the issues that were in their city that they were supposed to keep watch over to seek the welfare of the city. And so being checked in on would we'll get these guys all bent out of shape. And maybe I'm just thinking too much into this. Maybe, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but maybe Christians can find themselves in a similar situation, where, where you work for King Jesus, but maybe because of some felt distance between you and the Lord, you're sort of just, you've kicked back a little bit. You've gotten into a place of being comfortable with, with where you're at in the King's work, and, and yet there's glaring issues that are going on all around you that you're not giving attention to. There are people and places around you that are in distress, You want to know the sign of whether a person is living this sort of comfortable Christian life. It's shown when someone tries to look into your welfare, you get all bent out of shape. It it shows when someone begins to take a closer look at your life and you try to hide the issues. And I think Sambalat and Tobiah, yeah, they opposed the work, but maybe it's just because they were comfortable. And, And they thought, that Nehemiah coming into their region, that the changes that would be brought would disturb them because their norm would be threatened. And they didn't want that, so they would oppose it. And, And sometimes for a work of God to happen in a place, guys, this is what we need. We need serious changes to come about. That God wants to bring his work, and when his work comes, it means getting uncomfortable, being sacrificial, living in a way that wants to bring change and see change for people. But that threatens people living a comfortable Christianity. So let me ask you today that if King Jesus were to come today and check in on your work that you're doing for him today, would you be displeased by him checking in or would you be happy to show him what you've been up to? It's a good question to ask yourself. That's a good question to see as to whether you are being comfortable or you're really living for change. And so that's just a thought. Maybe it's too far out on a ledge, I don't know. Let's look at the final verses, verse 11 through 16. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I arose in the night and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate and to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain, uh, fountain gate into the king's pool. And there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gates and so returned. And the, kings of, or and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Quick point here is that Nehemiah prepared in the private place before he went into the public space. This is another great quality of leadership in Nehemiah. Also speaks to his prayer. Before he goes out and says, all right, guys, let's build, he goes out humbly and he inspects the walls and the gates. He, he needed this time because he had only prayed about this thing and he wanted to see it for himself. And, and, to, and it says there that he... He cherished these things in his heart before he shared them with other people. And and, you know let this be a revelation to you, is that you don't need to reveal everything to people. And, And this is what Nehemiah does, is that he prepared in the private place for what God would do with him in the public space. And he did that by seeking intimacy with God, where he would bring the things to God before he brought them to the people. And we see just that great leadership. But then in verse 17, this is the charge. This is the moment we've all been waiting for where Nehemiah comes back from his time of prayer and seeking out what needs to happen to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. He comes back to lead the people. It says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. The announcement finally comes from this leader. Let us build. Let us no longer be people who suffer derision. Let's no longer see God's name dishonored and God's people in distress, and see destruction upon his holy land. Nehemiah wanted to see change, and now he says in verse 18, and I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Nehemiah was a leader who gave credit to where credit was due. He said, God has had his hand on me. He has used the king to bring me to this place. And just as a leader of what I believe is a great work, where God's hand's upon us, I want to give credit to where credit is due. All glory is to God. But there are too many names to name. I've already mentioned our elders who, who had been leading life on the Hill Church. But, but guys, if you have had your hands upon this good work, whether you've been with us for the whole two years, we're coming up on two years as a church, by the way, next month. Whether you've been with us for the whole two years or you've just kind of come along in the way, if you've had, a, had your hand on this work, you know who you are. You know who you are. And thank you. Thank you for participating in this good work. And I also want to say this is whole, I'm going to say this to the whole church. Everyone who's here this morning, do not lose out on the blessing of being involved in something that God's hand is upon. It's so much fun. Who's having fun? <laughs> Amen, I love it. There's a place in this work that's happening here at Calvary Chapel, Palos Verdes, where you can get your hands on the wall, where you can get your hands on what God is building here. So Nehemiah says, God's hand is upon us. So let's rise up and build. Again, this church will be two years old next month. We're gonna throw a party. And I believe that God is calling us to continue to build. I think think we gotta go to two services pretty soon, guys. Don't you think? There's no more seats left in here. And we wanna fill this room again and again and again with people who are gonna hear the name of Jesus. But in order to go to two services, what does that require? It requires people who have their hands on the work. So just as a pastor, I humbly ask, Would you get your hands on the work with us so that we could continue to build for God's kingdom, amen? Amen. Let's do it. Verse 19 and 20, Sambalat and Tobiah come again and and bring opposition again and again, I'm just gonna say, anytime there's a good work happening, there's gonna be opposition, there's gonna be criticism. Don't be found on the side of being a critic. Don't be found on the side of opposing a work of God. Get involved in the work of God because if you're opposing the work of God, if you're a critic to the work of God, Nehemiah says you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And that is is something that's true for the devil. He has no portion, no right, and no claim upon heaven. He has no portion, he has no right, he has no claim upon your life. You have been covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we will continue to work. We will continue to build this church. We will continue to advance the kingdom of God even when there's opposition. Expect the opposition. The devil hates what we're doing. Just don't be found on that side of the coin. Be found on the side where you're saying with Nehemiah, you're saying with the body of Christ, let us rise up, let us build. Amen? Let's all stand up together. I just pray that today would be a reminder of what God's doing in our midst, and that we would give credit to where credit is due. All glory is to Jesus Christ for his church. We are his church. We are his bride. And and just as I said, well, well, who does the work? Does God do the work or did Artaxerxes do the work? Did God do the work or do you do the work? What is it? Yes, it's both. We need to do the work of building this church. We need to do the work of building God's kingdom. And so I just pray that, that if you were perhaps convicted today, you would say that you felt some sort of felt distance between you and the king and you've gotten in sort of this comfortable, laid-back Christianity that today you would be brought out of that. You'd be brought into a place where you'd say, I'm gonna set my hand to the plow and I'm not gonna look back. I'm gonna put my hands to the work. And and as we'll see later, there's gonna be a trial in one hand and a sword in the other because as you're working, there's gonna be opposition. If you rise up and you build the kingdom of God, expect that the enemy's gonna push back on you. And, And so, but if God's blood protects us, if the blood of Jesus covers us, If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen. God's for us. His hand's upon us. Let's worship him today because of that. Amen? Amen? Love you all.